Greetings, saints. Welcome to Brother Hebert Presents. This is part five of Millennialism. You can follow along with the article by going to www.thinkoutsidethebeast.com. Millennialism can be found in the Traditions of Men on the main menu. Let's wrap up our examination of what the kingdom is. In the last two episodes, we have been covering the verses in the New Testament that read, The Kingdom of God. We have been seeing that Yahshua Christ and his disciples were not proclaiming a physical kingdom. They were proclaiming the fulfillment of some of the prophecies, blessings, power, and mysteries of the kingdom, which is a kingship or reign, which is measured not by physical boundaries, but by faith and allegiance. Yeshua's kingship or reign, exists wherever his people honor him as king. 1 Thessalonians 1.4 Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election by God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake so that ye were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Master, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith 
to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. Thessalonica became a base for the gospel to spread throughout Adamic society, the cosmos. They were showing the example of what it means to build the kingdom of God. Romans 10.18 But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the end of the world. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul teaches to be occupied in the edification of the kingdom. 1 Thessalonians 2.11 As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his children, that you would walk worthy of God, who has called you unto his kingdom and glory. This parallels the parable Yeshua Christ taught of the certain man who had two sons and told them to go work in his vineyard. The one son said, I will not, but afterwards repented and went. The other son said, I will go, and went not. 2 Thessalonians 1.5 Which is a manifest token, or clear evidence, of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the reign of God for which you also suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Since the kingdom of God is something present, as in a condition, a state of mind, a way of being, and a reign, we see that in Ephesians 5.5, 5, that you cannot be reigning with Yeshua Christ if you are a whoremonger, an unclean person, covetous, an idolater, and if you are any of these, you will not have any inheritance in the kingdom of God. One with an unclean spirit is one who is immoral in thought and life, one who has a demon, and one who is of another race. 2 Corinthians 6.17 is a reference to Leviticus 26.12, Exodus 29.45, Isaiah 52.11, Jeremiah 31.1, Ezekiel 37.27, all referring to Israelites being acceptable to God when they touch not the unclean, whether it be in the lifestyle of a pagan, the worship of idols and other gods, or marriage relations with other races. Revelation 18.2 is a reference to Isaiah 21.9, both of which are references to Mystery Babylon, which we are to come up out of and not partake of her sins. Mystery Babylon is a dwelling place of demons and unclean spirits, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Birds are symbolic of evil persons and those of other races that eat up God's people, and they also perform God's judgment on his people when we sin. The raven derives from the Hebrew words meaning to be dusky and to be intermixed or mingled, and is classified as unclean by God's law. Colossians 1.13, we saw that when we are filled with the knowledge of God's will, and we walk worthy, being fruitful in every good work, we come into the condition 
of being qualified to be partakers of the inheritance which was promised unto us, and we are delivered from the power of darkness and embodied into the reign of his dear Son. In Colossians 4.11, we see that when we follow his commandments, we become fellow workers and laborers unto the reign of God. In 2 Thessalonians 1.5, we see that when our faith grows and we abound in brotherly love toward each other and endure persecutions and afflictions which we bear together, we show the manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that we will be rewarded and be counted worthy of the reign of God for which we suffer. Hebrews 12.28 Wherefore we receiving, or taking possession of, a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Why did the chapter end with this verse? Because that is how the end of this age and reign of Satan will end, in consuming fire. And as the parable of the wheat and tares shows, the evil will be removed and the righteous shall remain. In verse 28, the receiving of a kingdom has to do with our down payment of the Spirit and of the blessing of grace. The gospel message is also called the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 3, 2. Jesus Christ, Yahshua, is king. Believers are his subjects. The gospel is his scepter, and the ordinances are his laws and appointments, and all are immovable. And a man may be said to receive this kingdom when he is delivered from the power of darkness is regenerated, and has the blessings of grace bestowed on him. Revelation 12.10 And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation, and strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night, Job 1, 9-11, Satan says Job would curse God if he removed his protection from him. Zechariah 3, 1, Satan accused Joshua the high priest of sin. Revelation 11:15, Satan accused the Christ that these were not his kingdoms because the world was under the reign of Satan. Where it reads, the power of his Christ should read, and the authority of his anointed. Now is come salvation, and strength, and the reign of our God, and the authority of his anointed. Christ is Christos in the Greek, which means anointed. In many instances, it refers to the anointed people, the seed of Jacob. Who did Christ, Yeshua, send out to spread his word, to heal the sick, subject the spirits, and have power over the enemy? Israelites, the anointed people. Luke 10, 19-20, he gave his people power and authority. In references of Revelation 12, 10, 
Job 1, 9 through 11, Zechariah 3, 1, and Revelation 11:15, Job, Joshua the high priest, and all the kingdoms of the anointed were all Adamic brethren of the same national ancestor, whom Satan and his children tried to claim victory and ownership over. Verse 11, And they overcame their enemies by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. Because they knew the moment they rise from the grave, they will see their Redeemer. We see in 2 Peter 1.11 that for you to enter into the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ, you must give diligence to make your calling and choosing sure by doing certain things. Just believing is not enough. You must have the right belief, and you must add to your belief uprightness, which comes by following the commandments of God and the teachings of Jesus Christ, and to that you must deepen your knowledge further than where the churches leave you. Just believe. To your knowledge, you must add temperance, which is self-control from worldly desires, and you must have patience, which is endurance, and to that you must add reverence, reverence to God and His laws, and to reverence brotherly affection, which means to love your race, something which is looked down on and called racism these days. It's not a crime to love your own race, and it does not mean you hate the other races. So if you have all these things and are diligently doing them, they cause you to be neither inactive nor without fruit in the knowledge of our Master Yeshua Jesus Christ. You will never stumble, for in this way an entrance into the everlasting reign shall be richly supplied to you. In Revelation 12.10, we see that those who overcome Satan and his children and this world system, cosmos, and endure to the end, will be delivered and enter into the reign of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, because we have overcome the adversary because of the blood of the Lamb, and because of the word of our witness, and we did not love our lives to the death. This is what is meant by Mark 8.35, For whosoever desires to save his life shall lose it, but whosoever loses his life for the sake of me and the good news, he shall save it. Psalm 103.19 Yahweh has prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. Over all created beings, over angels, good and bad, over men, righteous and wicked, over kings and princes, over devils and over his saints. Within the kingdom of God, various subdivisions exist. Matthew 12:26 And if Satan cast out Satan he is divided against himself how shall then his kingdom stand Daniel 4:17 This matter is by the decree of the watchers 
and the demand by the word of the holy ones, to the intent that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomsoever he will, and sets up over it the basest of men. When wicked men rule over us, it is a judgment from God. Matthew 4.8 Again the devil took him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them. The devil offered the kingdoms of this world to Yeshua Christ. Yeshua does not want the kingdoms of this world, as his kingdom is not of this world. The world hates we who reign with our Christ, because we are not of this world system, just as Jesus Christ is not of this world system. Jesus loved his own, which are in the world, John 13, 1. Jesus prays not for the world, but for those of his in the world who glorify him, John 17, 9-10. We are in this world in the midst of a crooked and perverse race, among whom we shine as lights in the world, Philippians 2, 15. Jesus explained in the parable of the wheat and tares that both are living in the kingdom at the same time. The war is for the world, for the kingdom. Now let's see if scripture teaches that we get a second chance after we die. Millennialists believe that those who have not had an opportunity to hear the truth because there is so much deception, will get another chance in the so-called millennium. They say that if a child died too young before it had a chance to understand the word or hear the word, then they too will have a chance during the millennium. This next section is Second Chance? Psalm 58.3 The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Infants who die can go into the lake of fire on judgment day if their spirit was not already preordained for salvation through Jesus Christ. People fail to understand that most children do not grow up to be Christians, rather little heathens. But only Yahweh knows who will be with him and who will be against him. Ephesians 1.4 According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the placement of sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Jesus said that people will be judged based on what they did during their lives. Matthew 16:27 For the son of Adam shall come in the glory of his father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Some will point to John 5:25 as evidence that those who have died will have the gospel preached to them. John 5:25 Verily, verily, I say unto you, The hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. 
But this interpretation takes the verse out of its context. The entire passage is John 5.25-29, to 29, which makes it clear that the context is the final judgment. John 5.26 For as the Father possesses life in himself, so he gave also to the Son to possess life in himself, and he has given him authority also to do judgment, because he is the Son of Adam. Do not marvel at this, because the hour is coming in which all those in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have practiced evil matters to a resurrection of judgment. Some particular instances, of which would shortly be, persons who would be in the state of the dead and to whom the voice of Christ would be attended with such power as to cause them to hear and live, as did Jarius' daughter upon his saying, Talitha kumi, damsel arise, and the widow of Naim's son, upon his saying, young man arise, and Lazarus, upon him calling to him, Lazarus come forth. This is also to be understood of a spiritual resurrection, and the rather, because this sense best agrees with the foregoing verse. Verse 28 is speaking of those in the grave. The difference is verse 25 is speaking of those particular miracles, hence the words, and now is. Verse 28 is speaking of the general resurrection at the end of the age, 1 Thessalonians 4.16. Verse 29 confirms this. The parable of Lazarus and the rich man, Luke 16.19-31. There is no indication that he was going to get another chance. In fact, in the story, Abraham says that no one can pass over from the realm of punishment to the realm of reward, or vice versa. That the rich man had his chance, and that the living have Moses and the prophets to hear, and they still have time to repent. Does Peter misquote Joel 2.28-32? Acts 2.16 but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaids I will pour out in those days of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood, and fire, and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of Yahweh come. And it shall come to pass, that whosoever shall call on the name of Yahweh shall be saved. Peter quotes this passage to his audience, to show that there is still time to repent before that final judgment, as Joel indicated in the context. 
In other words, if the part about the Holy Spirit came true, then we should get ready for the parts about judgment as well. Hebrews 9.27 And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. If there were a millennium, wouldn't it have been mentioned in verse 27 after die and before judgment? Hebrews 10.26 For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. The opportunity to hear has always been available. Yahweh draws whom he will. Zechariah 10.8 I will whistle for them and gather them, for I have redeemed them, and they shall increase as they have increased. And I will sow them among the people, and they shall remember me in far countries, and they shall live with their children, and turn again to me. Isaiah 52.15 So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which has not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. The sprinkling is a reference to the blood of Jesus, the grace of the Spirit, and the doctrine of Christ which is compared to rain and dew falling gently upon the souls of men. Romans 15.21 But as it is written, To whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. This happened, and is happening, during this gospel age. Romans 10.16 But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Yahweh, who has believed our report? Isaiah 53.1 Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of Yahweh revealed? Verse 17 So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. Psalm 19.4 Their line is gone out through all the land, and their words to the end of the world. In them has he set a tabernacle for the sun. Matthew 24.14 and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all the nations of Israel, and then shall the end come. Verse 19 But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses said, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. Deuteronomy 32.21 they have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. 
They have provoked me to anger with their vanities, and I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Titus 3.3 For we ourselves also were at one time foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. Verse 20 But Isaiah is very bold, and said, Isaiah 65.1 I am sought of them that ask not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, Behold me, behold me, unto a nation that was not called by my name. Verse 21 But to Israel he said, All day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Yahweh's word has gone into all the world. Every white nation has heard of Jesus and the gospel. God's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Those who have heard and not responded will die in their sins. Those who have not heard were not called and drawn to hear. The churches are full of these. Matthew twenty-two fourteen. For many are called, but few are chosen. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. For he said, I have heard you in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation I have relieved you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That was from Isaiah 49.8. Now, in this age, sinners are convinced of their need of grace, repentance, and salvation, and that it cannot be had elsewhere. Now, they are made to submit to Yeshua Christ, to be saved by Him and Him alone, and now they are encouraged to believe in Him, and are by Him actually possessed of it. Now is, and not yesterday was, the day of salvation. And now, and that forever, that is, as long as this gospel age continues. For it will be always now, till all the elect of God are gathered in. This day of grace and salvation will never be over till that time comes. It is still now is the day of salvation, though men may have long withstood the ministration of the gospel, and notwithstanding their manifold sins and transgressions. There is no withstanding the now of grace when it comes with the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no mention or implication of another time period in a future millennium to find salvation. If there were, Jesus the apostles, and the prophets would have said so. Jeremiah 31.33 But this shall be the covenant 
that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts, and write it in their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, says Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. After those days is a reference to the first advent of Messiah, the spread of the gospel. Paul repeats this new covenant in Hebrews 8, 10 through 11. Some millennialists claim that Jesus went into hell, the nether parts of the earth, and preached to the captives, released them from their prison, and took them to heaven. I am also guilty of falling for this assumption. With deeper research and prayer, I now understand the context. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The design of the Apostle in the reference to the sufferings of Christ is evidently to remind them that he suffered as an innocent being and not for any wrongdoing, and to encourage and comfort his listeners in their sufferings by his example. The idea on which the Apostle would particularly fix their attention was that he was just or innocent. Thus, he was an example to those who suffered for well-doing, that his death might be the means of reconciling sinners to God. Now verse 19 is where people assume Jesus went and preached to the dead. By which, evidently by the Spirit referred to in the previous verse, he went, to wit, in the days of Noah, God is often represented as coming, as descending, when he brings a message to mankind. Thus, Genesis 11.5, Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower. Exodus 19.20, Yahweh came down upon Mount Sinai. Numbers 11.25, Yahweh came down in a cloud. 2 Samuel 22.10, he bowed the heavens and came down. The idea, however, would be conveyed by this language that he did this personally, or by himself, and not merely by employing the agency of another. He went and preached, namely, in and by Noah, who spake by the Spirit of Christ to the men of that generation of Noah's day, 1 Peter 1.11, and preached, 
the word used here, G2784, Caruso, is of a general character, meaning to make a proclamation of any kind, as a crier does, or to deliver a message, and does not necessarily imply that it was the gospel which was preached, nor does it determine anything in regard to the nature of the message. It is not affirmed that he preached the gospel, for if that specific idea had been expressed, it would have been rather by another word, G2097, Euangelizo, the gospel. The word used here, Caruso, would be appropriate to such a message as Noah brought to his contemporaries, or to any communication which God made to the people. Unto the spirits in prison, that is, clearly, to the spirits now in prison, for this is the fair meaning of the passage. The obvious sense is that Peter supposed there were spirits in prison at the time when he wrote, and that to those same spirits the Son of God had at some time preached, or had made some proclamation respecting the will of God. They were men in the flesh when Christ preached to them by his Spirit speaking in Noah, but after they were dead, their spirits were shut up in the infernal prison, detained like the fallen angels, Judges 1.6, unto the judgment of the great day. Now we must ask, who are referred to by spirits? What is meant by in prison? Was the message brought to them while in the prison, or at some previous period? Who are referred to by spirits? The specification in the next verse determines this. They were those who were sometimes disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. It is not specified that Jesus went down to Hades and preached to those confined there. Why would he preach only to that particular generation in which Noah lived, and not to others? But if it means that he preached to those who lived in the days of Noah, while they were yet alive, the question would be asked, why are they called spirits? Were they spirits then, or were they people like others? Peter speaks of them as they were when he wrote, not as they had been or were at the time when the message was preached to them. The idea is that to those spirits who were then, in Peter's time, in prison, who had formerly lived in the days of Noah, the message had been in fact delivered. In regard to the inquiry, then, who these spirits were, there can be no difference of opinion. They were that wicked race which lived in the days of Noah. There is no allusion in this passage to any other. There is no intimation that to any others of those in prison the message here referred to had been delivered. What is meant by prison here? The Syriac here is in Sheol, referring to the abodes of the dead, 
or the place in which departed spirits are supposed to dwell. The word rendered prison is G5438, fulake, means properly watch, guard. The act of keeping watch, or the guard itself, watch post, or station, a place where anyone is watched or guarded, as a prison, which sometime were disobedient, which were, once, or formerly, disobedient or rebellious. The language here does not imply that they had ceased to be disobedient, or that they had become obedient at the time when the apostle wrote, but the object is to direct the attention to a former race of people characterized by disobedience, and to show the patience evinced under their provocations in endeavoring to do them good. The meaning here is that they did not obey the command of God when he called them to repentance by the preaching of Noah. In 2 Peter 2.5, Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, God waited on that guilty race for 120 years. The next misunderstood verse is 1 Peter 4.6. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Does this state that the unsaved dead get a second chance to hear the gospel after they die? Regarding this second chance theology, we firmly disagree. First, it denies the clear teaching of Scripture, Luke 16.26, Hebrews 9.27, Matthew 25.31-46, in favor of an unclear passage, 1 Peter 4.6. Second, it doesn't fit with the immediate context. After all, the context warns of unbelievers standing before God in judgment. Why would this be a threat to the believer if they had a second chance after death? It would make no sense at all if he were to shift gears suddenly and promise a second chance to those who have rejected the gospel during this life. If Peter was promising a second chance, the Petrine readers would not be faulted for concluding that they could deny the faith now and then embrace it after death. Likewise, what kind of warning would it be to say that God is ready to judge people for wickedness in verse 5? and then add that it really doesn't matter much what they do in this life, for there will be a second chance for them to be saved after they die. Third, it doesn't fit with the grammar. Peter is referring to the gospel being preached in the past tense, not the future tense. This passage is not describing a future second chance for salvation. Do any of the kingdom parables teach a millennium? Matthew 13, 18. 
Hear you therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and understands it not, then comes the wicked and catches away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which received seed by the wayside. Four different things can happen. The wicked can snatch it. The heat of trouble can scorch it. The thorns of care can choke it. Or it can bear fruit in good soil. The mystery here is that the word of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, our God reigns, Isaiah 52, 7, is not sweeping the whole world before it. It's here with power to save some, but three-fourths of the kingdom preaching seems to be falling by the wayside. Those that received the seed of the word brought forth fruit by witnessing to others. If this parable were speaking about a millennial reign, wherein there is mass conversion, then why are three-fourths still being robbed of the word, offended by the word, and unfruitful with the word? Matthew thirteen thirty-one. Another parable he put forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. The mystery of the kingdom is that the kingdom came in Jesus like a mustard seed, and not a military coup. It would someday be a huge and mighty tree, or kingdom. But the mystery is that the kingdom has come into the world without the cataclysmic transformation most expected. With the spread of the gospel, the kingdom grew as a mustard seed. Herbs is symbolic of nations, Christian nations. The birds are the wicked and try to take away God's word from us. So we see again that the wheat and the tares exist in the kingdom at the same time, and the battle is for the kingdom on earth. America is God's kingdom on earth, and all the birds, the wicked, lodge in the branches thereof. There is no mention of a millennial reign in the three verses of this parable. Yeshua Christ explained what happens at the end of the age. Matthew 13:38. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked. The wheat and tares are living simultaneously in the kingdom. Sons of the kingdom, verse 38 and the sons of the evil one living side by side till the harvest, the day of judgment. Verse 40, As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The son of Adam shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. 
Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is a mystery of the kingdom, a kingdom existing for some time in this world with the righteous and evil living in it side by side until the consummation. This was not expected. The kingdom was to come with total power to destroy the wicked immediately and vindicate the righteous. But Jesus says it has arrived. There is fulfillment, but the consummation, the final separation of the righteous and evil, waits for the second coming of the son of Adam. If there were a glorious 1,000-year reign, wouldn't Jesus have spoken about it in this parable? Notice, there is no mention of a rapture either. Actually, it's a rapture of the wicked. Verse 41, middle clause. You are seeing the fulfillment of things our fathers longed to see. The kingdom has come, but there is a mystery. Not everyone is recognizing it. It's not what they expected. It's here, but the way it's here is a mystery. Matthew thirteen eleven. He answered and said unto them, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Matthew 13.45 Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. We Israelites are the pearl of great price. Yeshua paid the price, and we have been redeemed. No mention of the thousand years here either. Matthew 13.47 Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth, and sever the wicked from among the just, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. The mystery of the kingdom, again, is that as the net, the power of the gospel of the kingdom, draws men into its sway. It draws good and bad. Only when the net is up on shore at the close of the age will the good and the bad fish be separated. Notice carefully, the separation described here is not between the fish which didn't get caught in the net of the kingdom and those which did. The separation here is between two kinds of people who are swept into the net of the kingdom. One is kept, the other is cast into the fire. So the mystery of the kingdom is not only that the kingdom is at first limited in its scope and its effect in the world, it's a mustard seed, but also 
The mystery of the kingdom is that the people who come under the power of God's kingdom are, as we say, a mixed bag. Some are true disciples, and some are hypocrites. At the end of the age, the good are kept, the bad are thrown away. No mention of the millennium in this parable either, or a rehabilitation plan for the bad school of fish. Matthew 21.33 Hear another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a winepress in it and built a tower and led it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. At the time of harvest, the servants were sent to the husbandmen, which beat, stoned, and killed them. The householder then sent his son, but the husbandmen killed the heir and seized on his inheritance. Verse 43. Therefore say I unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. The Jewish Pharisees were the husbandmen at the time, the strong men. They were shutting up the kingdom from the people who would be entering in. Jesus was the stronger man that took the kingdom from them and gave it to his people who bring forth the fruits thereof. If the kingdom was future, how did Yeshua take it from the Pharisees? If the kingdom has not yet arrived, then the nations of Christian Israelites have not brought any fruit yet. History shows that the nation bringing forth the fruits thereof are the Israelite nations, specifically America. We Christian Israelite people all over the world are that nation that brings forth fruit for we are the nations that praise Yahweh our God.
much more than I do. I want to love you, Lord, much more than I do. Learn to seek your face and the knowledge of your grace. I want to love you. I want to serve you, Lord, much more than I do. I want to serve you, Lord. Much more than I do, I want to pray.